But does that mean the people in the U.S. actually are willing to go to war with China? That's a whole different question. But I also think that if the war were to, to actually come to fruition, that a lot of people would say, regardless of what we think about China, we're not willing to send our children, our brothers and sisters, to go fight a war against China, to go risk their lives, to be killed. The U.S. is a hypocritical society, if that was the one word, hypocrisy. That it's a government that, it's a society that's presented itself as the exceptional nation, the nation above all other nations. And yet, internally, inside the U.S., everything they accuse everyone else of, they practice at home. And sometimes to even greater degree. You know, there's 856 people were killed by the police in the United States last year. 856, at least that was in mid-December when I looked at the numbers. It's probably higher by the year's end. And yet, you know, the U.S. lectures the world about state violence and human rights. It's as if the U.S. is not a human rights violator. So, and that's just one example. You could take almost any category, and when you start to scrutinize it, you find hypocrisy. The U.S. obscures its own history of modernization, in fact. People just think the U.S. arrived as a modern society or something. You know, the U.S. is founded by slaveholders, drug dealers. You know, they were selling tobacco and sugar. People were stealing the land. And the fact that they had this huge territory where they basically expelled everyone, committed genocide, had this property for free that had all this land, it allowed the U.S., it had certain advantages in terms of its uh, modernization process, but even still, when it industrialized, it used massive amounts of child labor, massive amounts of immigrant labor, people who were worked to death. Every major infrastructure project in the 1800s and early 1900s in the United States, the bridges, the canals, the tunnels, they had huge amounts of suffering attached to them. This was the human cost of so-called modernization. And there was such enormous inequality that was generated at that time from inside the U.S. and then also basically colonialism, neo-colonialism, slavery. This is what the, these are the, the sort of the preconditions for U.S. modernization. But, you know, the fact that China has basically done it in a few short decades compared to the length of time that the West modernized and done it with I would say far less human suffering and without subjecting, without basically extracting lots of value from the rest of the world, um, without colonialism, is an amazing achievement. And frankly, I think the one thing that gets underestimated about Chinese modernization is the role of the, the Communist Party of China. You know, the fact that you actually have a government that can set 5, 10, 15 year plans, can set goals that are 30, 50 years out and then assess the political leadership at every level based on how, whether it's achieving those goals is very different from the U.S. political system. Where a politician comes in, they have no interest in an infrastructure project that's going to be finished in 20 years or 10 years. They have no interest in a poverty alleviation program that's not going to deliver immediate results. Why? Because their election is coming up in two years or four years. It's so competitive, so individualistic, focus really around short-term thinking, 
That's the reason why all the bridges are collapsing in the United States, why there's so many train derailments. I think that with the, the magnitude of the challenges, whether it's climate change, technology, you know, unemployment, all these different things, this is the moment in history where long-term planning is going to be heavily rewarded. I don't think a war between the US and China is totally inevitable. I think it is avoidable, but it's not avoidable unless there's a change in the form of government basically in the United States. I think it's both parties have a consensus right now that while they can disagree on almost any other issue, that if China is allowed to grow peacefully um, for the foreseeable future, that means the U.S. will lose its place as the top dog in the whole world. And both parties are united that this is completely an unacceptable outcome. It's true that people in the U.S. now have a more negative view of China than they did a few years ago because of the nonstop propaganda. People's perceptions of China can change a lot based on this propaganda. But does that mean that people in the U.S. actually are willing to go to war with China? That's a whole different question. But I also think that if the war were to, to actually come to fruition, that a lot of people would say, regardless of what we think about China, we're not willing to send our children, our brothers and sisters, to go fight a war against China, to go risk their lives, to be killed. I think at that point, there would basically be a pre-revolutionary situation in the United States. And so that's why I think the U.S. knows this. And they're trying to, instead of have actual war with China, what they're trying to do is increase the pressure on China, to encircle China, to use information war, hybrid war, financial war, to try to stimulate more contradictions inside of China. Once you start to let people know, well, actually the people in China, for whatever criticisms and problems they have and whatever debates there are, and of course there's lots of debates here, they support the government, they have trust in a lot of their institutions, higher levels of trust than we have in the West. That whole narrative of basically the U.S. as the white knight, the humanitarian savior, it starts to fall apart. But I think as China emerges more and more in the world, it will become a reference point for many other countries that have a similar history of colonialism, especially how to overcome colonialism. So my hope is that China, again, can become a, a reference point for an alternative model. In Latin America and Africa, people are tired of a financial system where they become deeply indebted, where they are basically made to produce only one crop or one natural resource. They have no strategic leverage or advantage in the global trading system. And China represents an alternative. China represents usually better terms when it comes to loans, better trade agreements, less strings attached, um, more political autonomy where China doesn't try to you know, pick and choose who's gonna lead the, the different governments of the global south. So if you're a government in Africa or Latin America, that's gonna become very attractive after you've been dealing with the IMF for decades. It's not like any one country is perfect, but the whole narrative of neo-colonialism, that is an invention that is being designed to preserve Western hegemony in Africa. Um, they, they see the writing on the wall. They see what the pop, what is the global population going to look like in 50 years? It's going to be overwhelmingly Asian and African. And so how does the West maintain its domination if that's the case? The only way it can maintain its domination is if it gets the vast majority of people in Africa to distrust the people in Asia and vice versa. So they have an interest in building now a narrative that splits up any kind of unity 
uh, strategic unity between Asia and Africa, I think this is to them the greatest threat they're facing. Mm -hmm.